Hello, everyone. Welcome to All Things Episcopal, where we talk about anything and everything related to the Episcopal Church. This podcast was designed with younger folks in mind and as a space to learn more about the Christian faith with the Episcopal lens. So in traditionally Episcopalian greeting fashion, the Lord be with you. Well, hello, everybody. It is good to have you back with us uh, to listen to yet another episode of All Things Episcopal. And today I am very excited to have um, a guest speaker with us who is um, a former professor of mine and graciously accepted um, to uh, come onto the podcast today and spend a little bit of time with us. Uh, Today we have Claire um, on the uh, recording with us and the esteemed Reverend Dr. Dan Jocelyn Simitowski. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here. Thank you for being here with us. And just to give everybody a little bit of background on our guest today, uh, the Reverend Dr. Dan Jocelyn Simitowski is the Kraft Family Professor and Director of the Center for Christian Jewish Learning at Boston College. He is a scholar of Jewish-Christian relations, comparative theology, and Anglicanism. He serves at Christ Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and is the ecumenical and interreligious relations co-officer for the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts. Prior to Boston College, he taught church history at Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, Texas, and Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley, California. Today, Dan has agreed to participate in a bit of an Ask Me Anything uh, episode with you all today, and we have pulled some questions from you, the listeners, and a little bit from uh, your host's um, very chaotic brains. So we are very excited to begin, and um, I think we'll just start right off the top here with uh, Dan. Why is it important that we um, take a step back and understand our roots and our history as as Christians within this great Christian tradition. Right. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you all. Thanks for having me here. Um, I think one of the core things is that Christianity is about story and relationship. And if we keep our connection just in the our present generation or maybe where our parents or grandparents told us, we don't have the full sense of who we are or where we've been from. I think there's also the sense that um, this is an experience I had a lot when teaching uh, church history and seminary. People simply saying, how come no one ever told me that? Or that's the first time that's been explained to me. Or um, why couldn't we just have been taught all this sooner? So I think there's also a sense that People know there's something bigger than what's their immediate experience of the church. And having people know the deeper story is actually, I think, very liberating. It allows you to ask more questions. It sets you free to dig deeper. Um, and it's also a way of, of sig- signaling to us in our present time that it's not all about us and not all about our brand of Christianity. Mm. Mm, it's not all about us. That's probably hard for some of us to hear sometimes. Yes. Uh, you know, it, you named a little, you started to name uh, with your experiences from um, teaching in seminary settings, uh, some challenges. And that begs a question of what's the most challenging part of being a scholar in this area? 
um, right now. There is just too much to actually master. So the history of Christianity is 2,000 years. It's across dozens of languages, if not hundreds, multiple cultural locations uh, with branches of events. Uh, There's different ways of thinking about intellectually or theologically, institutionally, culturally, lived religion. Uh, there's texts, there's artifacts, there's images. So there's all these different forms of knowing. So simply getting your arms around it. And one of the problems of teaching in seminary is often the church history professor is a solo gig. There's one church history professor who has to do it all. Whereas somehow in the Bible area, they get away with getting two people to teach (laughs) two parts of a book. And um, we actually have to know quite a bit. So I think just keeping on top of the scholarship, there's just new stuff always coming out, new ways of reading, new texts have been translated, new archaeological finds, new aspects of material culture opening up. Just staying on top of all the diversity of Christian life is a real challenge. So you speak of diversity uh, uh, that's coming forward in the life of, you know, uh, of, of Christianity and the history that, that is brought forward to all of us. Um, what's the most exciting thing out there right now? What's the most exciting uh, recent discoveries or, you know, what's on the precipice of being the next big thing? Yeah. Um, Two, two areas. Uh, let me do something ancient and something modern. So ancient stuff, the really interesting field that's opened up really over the past decade, two decades, has been uh, the history of uh, Christianity to the east of the Mediterranean. So uh, the Church of the East, as it's known, which was a church that was centered in Baghdad, that stretched geographically from essentially um, ancient Mesopotamia it had missionary outposts all the way to the Chinese capital of Qian in the ancient world, spreads down into uh, southern India. Um, Christianity seems to get to Tibet before Buddhism does. Uh, so, And that's just a whole fascinating region of scholarship. The, their language was Syriac, uh, which was a further dialect of Aramaic. And so often people talk about Syriac Christianity or Syriac studies as just continuing to be fascinating. And part of what's fascinating is it's an ancient form of Christianity that was a minority that dealt with not just cultural diversity, but religious diversity, as in Buddhism, Islam, um, uh, Taoism, you know, and so it's all these fascinating artifacts of how they engage with that. Uh, On the modern end, it's probably um, what used to be called like missionary history where all these different missionaries who get sent out from Western countries, Christian countries to various parts of the globe, um, it can read that as a very kind of colonial enterprise, but these missionaries create these archives. It has bulletins and journals and records of other encounters. And scholars have started to read against the grain of those encounters to see the indigenous experience of the encounter with Christianity and often how indigenous people navigated and made Christianity their own. So there's a deeper appreciation of, say, in Africa, what's called African-initiated churches, 
the, the African churches that make Christianity their own and have become their kind of own global uh, movement um, as a result. Earlier, you had mentioned um, artifacts um, within um, ancient church history. Other than the Holy Bible, what specific written sources do we have for the earliest days of the church? And do we actually use them in contemporary settings and for what purpose and in what context? So probably the most fascinating one is a document called the Didache or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which we'd had the name of for a very long time, but was lost until about the middle of the 19th century when a a, a manuscript of it was discovered in an archive in Italy, I believe. Um, And the Didache narrates kind of an ancient manual, essentially, of how to run church. It seems to be from the region of Syria. Um, It maybe is in within what we call a a Jewish Jesus-believing context. Um, It lays out a very early form of the Eucharist. It shows bishops as once form authority, but also wandering prophets and teachers as another form of teaching authority. So it gives us a a flash insight into the Christian tradition as it was developing. And scholars have a range of dating from it. Some scholars date it really early, like 90 of the common era, which would make it contemporaneous with like John or into like the year, like 150. So there's about a 60 year range, but it's contemporaneous. We could say with like some of the late new Testament texts, like, the book of revelation or third john or some of these other texts that we know are a little bit later um and it's been it was used a lot in what was called the liturgical renewal movement in the 20th century when scholars are trying to figure out okay one of the ways that we can all be unified whether we're protestant or uh, catholic is we can like look to early forms of christian worship as like a source of commonality uh, before all the divisions emerged so the decay became really important as a base text for thinking through some of that. Uh, some of our other early texts are um, letters from, say, uh, Polycarp, uh, Clement of Alexandria, who are very early church leaders and say, period about 110, 120. And those texts have been preserved more or less continuously through Christian history and sort of are used as kind of touch points for seeing how early Christian teaching emerges. You had mentioned the apostles. Um, yeah. I'm curious if you think um, one of the original 12 apostles had more influence over the early life of the church mm-hmm. and um, which one it might be in. Are they a holy troublemaker in the, in the right. sense of <laughs> creating yeah. a little so, ruffling of feathers? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of tricky to figure out so I think one thing that's important to think about with early Christianity is how diverse it was. Um, people go out and spread the Christian message. And if you if you read like early Christian texts really carefully, like Paul, you know, Paul goes to like Corinth and he's like, well, who baptized you? And he's like, it wasn't me. And then you're all of a sudden you're thinking, wait, someone else was there before Paul. And he names various people who do baptizing. And so we can see early on if, like, we accept, like, the first, the oldest Christian text we probably has is 
we have is First Thessalonians, um, maybe written in like about 55, 53, something like that. And it's already an argument. It's already like the first text is Paul trying to settle an argument, a debate in a, the community in Thessaloniki. So that tells me that from early on, Christianity is like widely diverse and people already have debates and disagreements. And so one of the things that, that's useful to think about is like different apostolic communities. There's people who form around the identity of Peter, people who form around the identity of Paul or John uh, or Matthew. And that's what gives rise to things like these various gospels named after these various apostles, for instance. Like they have the memory of that apostle. So I think Peter is really important uh, for the Jerusalem church. John seems to be important in places like Ephesus. Uh, Paul clearly is important um, in the various communities he goes to. And so one of the things to think about is not like one has more authority than the other, although our thinking often comes down to a contrast between, say, Peter and Paul. But that there's these different communities all having kind of their own particular window on what it means to be a follower of Jesus at that time. And so the story of early Christianity is people trying to come to a common mind with their various perspectives. Oh, I'm so glad you said trying to come to a common mind because that bring that's just a great segue because as the church does find itself growing both you know in in people but also across the span of the known globe right like this in geography the church is exploding how does it maintain its unity in the ancient church yeah yeah so the the really the story of early christianity is this like quest for unity um this ideal of some kind of being cohering together in Christ. I think the metaphor of the body of Christ uh, is a really powerful one in, in early Christianity. Um, not all Christians thought that unity looked the same. So we have different traditions with different ways of emphasizing the focus of unity. So we have traditions like um, and so we can have this come down to different kind of teaching traditions. So one that comes out is what we call it the Gnostic movement, which is based on initiates receiving deeper secret teachings of Jesus that their teachers passed on. And then what we could call like the Catholic movement and Catholic here means universal. And I, I would add the qualifier public. That is that there's a public proclamation that everyone has access to and that there's no one has secret knowledge. There's no hierarchy of believers. Um, but uh, bishops emerge in the Catholic movement as symbols of the teaching preserved by D Jesus. And so we really have these differing networks of how unity is achieved. And the one that comes to predominate is this Catholic movement. That focuses on the teaching authority of bishops as a way of ensuring that there's a consistent, clear, public teaching of the gospel. And then that involves into different bishops, have differing relationships, and that moves into things like church councils, where groups of bishops from various regions get together to come to a common mind over bigger issues and problems and debates. 
because this is the All Things Episcopal podcast, um, I want to focus a little bit more on how we maintain the unity of the of the Episcopal Church within the broader globe of the Anglican Communion. So every so often we hear that the Episcopal Church is part of the Anglican Communion. What exactly does that mean and how does that impact our governance in our churches and um, broader faith community? Yeah, that's a big question. That kind of moves us forward and we probably also have to go backward again to get some of that rooting. But yeah, so Episcopal is, it's a weird thing kind of church we call the Episcopal church because like an adjective is like our primary identifier. So we are a church founded around the authority of bishops. Um, Why are we called the Episcopal church? Because we couldn't call ourselves the Church of England anymore after the American Revolution. Um, So what that means is that we have a form of governance where bishops kind of maintain the local communities that more or less map along state boundaries, but not exclusively, um, they're in relationship. So, so all these bishops in the Episcopal Church, we recognize each other. Bishop of Missouri recognizes the Bishop of Massachusetts, and we come together in our own kinds of councils. We just don't call a council usually. Maybe in Missouri, call your dust and gather in a council, but we have the General Convention. Which basically, every three years, we have a council where we get together and decide things. And then we cohere within the Anglican Communion, whose symbol of unity, one of them is the Archbishop of Canterbury. So the idea is that everyone who's in the Anglican Communion is in full, visible unity with what we call the C, S-E-E, of Canterbury, which means the C coming from the word sedes in Latin, the seat, the seat of Canterbury. So we have our own kind of sense of of a way of relating that's based on relationship and communion, not Eucharist per se, but recognizing a mutuality of relationship between each other. Um, but the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Anglican Communion isn't in charge of the Episcopal Church. So we we and we emphasize this kind of mutuality of relationship. Um, I think that that's a unique model um, from other kinds of uh, Christian churches. And I threw a lot of different categories and ways of framing here. So let me see if where we might want to go from there. Well, I'm, I'm, let's, I think you, you've taken us to, you know, our roots as the Episcopal Church and where we come from by naming, you know, after the Revolutionary War, we can no longer call ourselves the Church of England. Obviously, our roots lie within the Church of England. So mm-hmm. perhaps explaining for our listeners, um, you've mentioned the Archbishop of Canterbury. How, how does how does the Archbishop of Canterbury work within the Church of England? And, and that might help establish right. that kind of uh, right. setting right. for us. So Canterbury is uh, the center of leadership in the Church of England. How that happened? Um, basically, the the mission of the Church of Rome to England in the fifth century, where Gregory the Great sends out um, Roman missionaries to England or to the Anglo Saxons, really. Um, and they, you know, if you look on a map, 
And if you're gonna go from Rome to England, you're gonna go across France, you're gonna get to the English Channel, you're gonna get a boat, you're gonna go across, and you're gonna land in Kent, which is where Canterbury is. It's near Dover, the cliffs of Dover, right? They're like, that's why the center of the, of the Church of England is there, is because that's that's the first kingdom that they got to, the kingdom of Kent. Uh so the Church of England is in relationship then with the Church of Rome all through the medieval period and it establishes its own network of churches. Um, the, Archbishop, the Archbishop of Canterbury then is the head of the Church of England and basically oversees the ordination of all of the bishops in the Church of England and creates that network of relationship. So that's why the Archbishop of Canterbury is so significant and takes on even more significance once that break with Rome happens under Henry VIII. So as the Church of England becomes independent, the primacy of the Archbishop of Canterbury goes higher because the importance of the Bishop of Rome has gone away. Well, you 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 had to name drop him, and somebody had to ask Henry VIII and the Church of England, and I think we all know divorce. Don't say, it. Don't say oh, it. too late. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But can you help? Can you help squash this this uh, this misconception about the birth of the Church of England? That the Church of England is just because Henry VIII wanted a divorce. That Henry VIII just couldn't control his uh, sexual desire. That's right. Yeah. All, all those things. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. That, that Showtime uh, show, I'm dating myself now, uh, did not help us either about uh, the Tudors. Um, okay. So, h- how we talk about this? Um, I mean, Colin knows, you know, he sat through this class uh, when I lay this all out. Um, Henry VIII, it's really important to realize one thing about Henry VIII that is not often seen in popular culture that he was an, an incredibly devout Catholic, very pious, attended mass daily, if not more so, had a massive collection of relics. Um, when Martin Luther comes on the scene, he basically ghostwrites a condemnation of Luther uh, in a treatise called the, In Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which leads the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, to declare Henry VIII a defender of the faith. So this we need to see that, that Henry is loyal to the church and loyal to the church in the first decade or so of the Protestant Reformation. Henry believes a couple of other things. Like any other European monarch, he believes he is anointed by God to be the monarch of that place. So you have a tension then between Henry is loyal to the church and Henry believing in his own divine mission for England. What's one of the primary things that any good monarch needs to do is to ensure the realm is stable. How do you do that? You have a male heir. The thing to realize is that Henry VIII's father, Henry VII, becomes king and the head of the Tudor dynasty after the end of a bloody civil war that we call the War of the Roses. And so part of Henry's desire is to ensure national stability and ensuring national stability is part of his divine responsibility. If he's not doing that, he's not doing what God sent him to do. Now we just bracket 
These are not our contemporary assumptions, but that is his worldview. Henry VIII was not supposed to be a monarch. His brother, Arthur, was supposed to be a monarch, but was killed uh, in an accident. Arthur is married to Catherine of Aragon, Spanish princess, daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, we've heard of them also. And um, the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. So the, the Tudor dynasty, uh, Henry VII, wants to keep the marriage to Catherine of Aragon. So Henry VIII marries her as a late teenager, and she's about 27 or so. So just for all, I know you got a lot, got a lot of young adult listeners there. Can you imagine being 18 and marrying a 27-year-old woman? There's gaps. There's gaps there. Okay? So just put that in your mind. Uh, they fail to produce a male heir who survives for a variety of reasons. This is really tragic. Henry comes to believe that actually he is being punished by God because there's one reading of the uh, of of uh, the Hebrew Bible that says you should not marry your brother's wife. There's another reading that says you should. That's called leveret marriage. But he comes to believe the reading that says you're cursed if you marry your brother's wife. And so he seeks an annulment based on that. So the issue for Henry really is, is he being a faithful Christian monarch? And if he can't produce a male heir, and that's a sign of God's judgment, he needs to undertake a means to ensure that he uh, is no longer in sin. So that's why he seeks the annulment with the Pope. The Pope denies it for a variety of reasons. A lot of it is political because, by the way, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, Catherine's nephew, has basically surrounded the city of Rome. And so it's not a good time for the Pope <laughs> to give an annulment to his uh, antagonist's uh, brother-in-law or uncle-in-law. That leads Henry to conclude that the Pope is in error, that the Pope is hindering his own divine mission for England. And that's where the breaking point comes then. Isn't that he um just wants to marry Anne Boleyn and that he can't control his sexual desire, although that might be part of it. Like, we can't discount the other humanness of it. But we have to appreciate the religious motivations that underlie it that often get obscured. And so I'll just land on this. Um, what Henry comes to articulate is an idea that's already circulating in that time period, which is that every Christian nation can legitimately have its own apostolically oriented church. That it can a Christian nation should have a Christian church, and that Christian church can lay claim to the heritage of the apostles. And so Rome is one church, and England's another church, and France is another church, etc. They all have their different apostles that they can lay claim to. I really hope that helps just squash the the big divorce bug that lives out there in the world uh, of people's minds. But well, the fight I'll continues. Make, maybe I'll make a mini series that really makes that all really compelling. 
oh yeah, we can reach out to, you know, one of those big media companies. We won't name drop them since they don't sponsor us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be going up against the the Broadway play six. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Um well, okay. So, well, thank you for thank you for doing that uh, and going and walking us through through that. Um, that now, I want to shift us back uh, back to the lens of of the Episcopal Church uh, a little bit. Um, what are what are three things uh, that you would hope uh, uh, maybe college age or young adult um, age range folks within uh, our world could know more about the church and more specifically? Uh, know about the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. So, the first thing I start with is that I think the gift of being Anglican, or Episcopalian, is that you talk about the value of uh, tradition within context. That you lay claim to this deep, broad Christian tradition, and that we we instantiate that in a number of ways we have our creed we have our eucharistic liturgy we have our bishops but part of the logic of actually the early english reformation was saying no we have to be christian in this way in this place the customs and policies of rome are appropriate for rome on the flip side, say, they're arguing with um, various Calvinists in Geneva. They'll say later on, what Geneva does is appropriate for Geneva. But for England, this is what's appropriate for us. So uh, that legacy is, I think, one of the best things about Anglicanism and the Episcopal Church is to ask, what's the best way for us to be Christian in this time and this place that allows us to be nourished by our tradition but also be relevant and real for the place where we are. And that's what allows us to do things like revise the liturgy, change the language, um, look at marriage and say, maybe our understanding of marriage is different than the past, but we can also locate where it continues Christian virtue. So that's one thing. I think the second thing would just be this idea of, um, I think, a great way of describing being Anglican and being part of the Episcopal Church is talking about in terms of Reformed Catholicity. Reformed Catholicity. That is, to build on what I was just saying, we're part of a tradition. It goes back to the apostles. Bishops are a valuable focal point for us seeing that, but we also have Catholicity in other ways, like these prayer book liturgies that we can trace back over time the heritage of scripture, the sense that we belong to something bigger than us, it's global in nature, and it crosses time. And we can look back to the past and ask what it means for us. But it's also reformed in the sense of saying the church can't be static. Sometimes um, it needs uh, correction. Sometimes we get too inured or uh, apathetic and let culture form us too much. And we need to take moments to look specifically at scripture as the primary norm and to say, what does the scriptural witness call us to? That isn't to be fundamentalist, but to say the scriptures are the foundation of what guides us to be followers of Jesus. And so if we're not always checking ourselves against that, just saying what a beautiful tradition we have 
or what a beautiful liturgy we have, or what an impressive bishop we have, will cause us to miss the essential things. Um, yes, for a third thing, but I'm not sure I got a third thing just yet. But I'll come up with with with, with one more. But I, I think those two elements I'd really like to emphasize. I'm going to take a, a hard left here. Um, so we know that you are the ecumenical and interreligious relations co-officer um, in the Diocese of Massachusetts. So you talked about apostolic succession, and I'm wondering how full communion with our siblings in the ELCA works um, in terms of bishops. Um, with you, we we had a brief conversation on this particular topic um, on another episode about full communion, but I'm wondering if we can get your hot take on it. Yeah, so the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and us, we've been in full communion now for I think just about 25 years. We're coming up on the 25th anniversary. I think our documents were ratified in 1999 and 2000. Um, in Massachusetts, we don't have a strong Lutheran presence, so it's not as strong on the ground as I think it probably is in some parts of, of where you all are. Um, this was a very hot debate um, with the Lutherans, because some Lutheran traditions retained bishops, especially in the Scandinavian countries, but the, German, the Germanic-derived countries didn't as much. And so the idea was that whenever a Lutheran... So the ELCA did have bishops because of the Scandinavian influence. But the question was, were they bishopy enough? <laughs> like, had they lost their apostolic succession? So I just want to say one thing here. I'm a, I am a um, magic hand skeptic. I don't think that the actual laying of hands is what confers apostolicity. Um, because, um, or that having a chart where you can go from one to 856 in terms of line of bishops is necessarily everything that confirms that you have apostolic succession because the Roman Catholic church looks at us and says, oh, you lost it somewhere. So even if you can count back, it doesn't do all of it. Or if you lay hands, it doesn't do all of it. So I think the choice that was made made sense within the logic of the Episcopal Church that this is how we establish things by laying off hands and showing a clear line of succession. And the ELCA, I think, was gracious enough to recognize it was important to us. Um, and so agreed that when ELCA bishops are consecrated, ordained, that the laying off hands would also be done by an Episcopal bishop to create that line of succession. I think that's actually a very mechanistic way of thinking about apostolicity. It's an important and valuable symbol. And the question is, what is a symbol teaching? Um, and one of the ways I've come to understand apostolicity and Catholicity for myself is, does the content of the teaching tradition that's been preserved look recognizably apostolic? And do you have a means within your tradition but that you can point to to say that is the thing that conveys it? In our tradition, we identify that in bishops. And I think I think that's actually like 
the best uh, one of the best vehicles out there for that. But I think to be truly ecumenical to look at say Presbyterians, like they don't have that, but they have other structures and ways of conveying that apostolicity. And I think when Episcopalians we begin to look at say free churches like Baptists, non-denominationals. I think part of where our, our anxiety comes in is we're saying, where can we see in here how you preserve Catholicity and apostolicity? If you're a Bible-only church, what's your norm for reading the Bible? There's no like um, self-obvious way of reading the Bible. Everyone's conditioned to read Bible in some way. There's no such thing as a literal reading of the Bible because Bible reading comes out of a communal practice. But if you insist that there is no tradition, which some free churches do, and you say that looking to the past is all about looking back at corruption and not really knowing Christ, that makes it harder to have an ecumenical relationship. Uh, from within uh, the perspective of the Episcopal Church. So that's why it's easy to get on board with ELCA folks, because they got bishops we can look at. Uh, we're going to try to work this out with Methodists who have a kind of bishop also. I was raised Methodist, so I can say that. But as you go further down the line to these more diffused structured churches, it's harder for the Episcopal Church to recognize light in those traditions. And that's where the ecumenical challenge really comes in. So, um, what's your biggest hope for the church of the heading into the 21st century? I mean, we are truly still heading into the 21st century. So, right. Yeah. I mean, I've said this a number of different ways. I keep on thinking, but I think we are actually really in some kind of major apocal shift in our culture. Uh, we're seeing it in all kinds of ways the rise of AI the environmental crisis, the ways in which technology and globalization um, both bring us closer together, but also isolate us even more profoundly. And so that's putting enormous stresses in all kinds of things, political order, educational system, economies, and the church. So the question, my hope for the church is that at first, is simply willing to name all the big changes happening and to recognize that our anxiety is about like, are enough people coming to church? Um, isn't just about, are we doing evangelism right? But to ask the question, why do people feel better in not going to church? Or what's the thing that makes them feel like they can't get there? Which isn't just about like, well, maybe they didn't read our flyer or maybe, you know, our, our Facebook ad didn't reach them. We're living in this profound culture of loneliness and isolation. So things like the opioid ep epidemic, for instance, speak to that profound loneliness. I think the reason why the year 2020 felt so insane was part, in part because of the profound isolation that COVID put on top of that. And one of my hopes for the church is to be able to find a way to speak to the profound loneliness and isolation that this culture is experiencing. 
Mm. And I don't think there's a magic formula. If we remember that the Episcopal Church at its best is being Christian contextually, to not be afraid to get into the local context and say, what does church need to look like here to address this profound need? Mm. Amen to that. That's great. Agreed. I love the the idea of reimagining what church can be um, yeah. and, and staying true to our identity as Anglicans through um, Richard Hooker's idea of scripture, reason, tradition. Um, what does that look like in in a space where people not might not want to experience church in traditional ways in a pew, um, but they're right. willing to do it in a park? Exactly. (laughs) Pews are an early modern invention. There used to not be pews in church. So you can get rid of a pew. Uh, There used to not be a railing around altar. You know why they put railings around altar? Was because people gave the farm animals as offering. They put the railing up to make sure the chickens didn't go on the altar. (laughs) Right? So like, you don't like, so one thing to keep in mind is what's essential to the tradition and what is custom. And this is what Hooker's great about. Hooker says, identify what's essential and what's custom can be adapted as long as the removal of that custom doesn't do harm to the core teachings of the church. Right. And um, I think that's a really important thing. I would say, I think people want the sense of the long story that the Episcopal church offers, that we're part of something bigger. People resonate with ritual and tradition. And um, I wouldn't want to see us say, well, let's just get rid of that because they don't want the name. They don't want that. Like maybe they do. Um, I'm a big fan of right one after serving in seminary where you just did right one a lot. And I don't do right one a lot because it's not done in the parish I attend. I miss it. I think there's, Something to be learned was just like sitting with a different kind of language and just letting it wash over you. Um, yeah. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Um, Dan, thank you. Thank you so much for um, being with us. I have one final question uh, that I just want to put out there uh, because, yeah. because you've, you've named something and now I can't stop thinking about it. Um, as you've named that we heading into this 21st century um, and we're seeing and experiencing the, this, you know, epochal change, right. Um, Has the church experienced a change, obviously not like this with the advent of technology and everything, but um, massive uh, change like this before. And if so, what can it learn from that? Right. The Protestant Reformation itself was a massive change. There's a whole reorientation of where authority lie in the church. And it was really spurred by its own kind of technological revolutions, like the printing press, the Bible, the rise of literacy. So the Protestant Reformation was a period of profound division. It led to bloodshed, upheavals, um, in some ways, a whole reorienting of the social system in various places. And so a couple of things is focus on the essentials 
know what the core teachings are, know who Jesus is, know what scripture says, be guided by those things. Uh, not to be afraid of conflict. Now, you don't want to go kill your neighbor, obviously. <laughs> but um, Judaism has this phrase, um, arguing for the sake of heaven. That is, you can like disagree profoundly and even choose to go separate ways. And that's okay if you're doing it for a higher purpose. That, that's more than for yourself. So being comfortable with hard decisions, I think, is an important thing that keeps the church going forward. Um, and being aware that you're, whatever you think you're doing might have a different outcome than you anticipate. So I'd like to talk about the, the Elizabethan settlement, where Elizabeth kind of says, we're going to hold ourselves together. We're going to orient ourselves around common prayer uh wherever you you have to go to church on sunday you can believe wherever you want to believe but come to church on sunday that worked for a while until you have the english civil war <laughs> uh, 75 years later 50 years later um so be aware that whatever compromise so whatever choices we make are always contingent and conditional that they're not never permanent things and they might lead to later choices down the road that you have to make or the people coming after you have to make. And so never getting too attached to form. To realize that form is provisional. It's what the form holds that's necessary to stay focused on. I think that is a wonderful thing to hear right now in the season of Lent. Um, particularly as we begin Lent with Ash Wednesday and are reminded exactly where we are returning and the, um, the, um, how limited, uh, time, our experience of time is. That's, that's beautiful. That's great. Uh, Claire, do you have anything that you would like to ask, um, of Dan before we, um, finish up? No, I love that we just had this beautiful conversation and ended on such a beautiful note. So I'm just going to let it be. Good. Good. Well, it's been great being with both of you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much for being with us and spending um, your Thursday morning with us and um, in, in, in imparting some of your, um, just a little, little taste of your vast, vast knowledge that you have um, and and for um, graciously being with us. I do appreciate it. We appreciate Good. it. Good. Well, thank you. I, I hope uh, your ministries flourish and that everything that you're doing bears good fruit. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we will see you all, or, well, I guess we won't see you, but we will uh, talk to you all later. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about all things Episcopal, visit campusministry.diowestmo.org backslash all things Episcopal. All Things Episcopal podcast is a production of the Diocese of West Missouri in association with Resonant Media. The Lord be with you all.